Hi, this is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. Right now, I've got a conversation, my conversation with Lee Goodkin, the journalist and memoirist, about his great memoir, My Last 8,000 Days. That's up there now. Check it out at authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the wonderful people over at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They have been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. To learn more about uh, the PNWA, they've got a, we got a little conference coming up in January, a little mini conference, mini online conference, Just Craft. Just craft, that's right, no, no pitching, no agents, no editors, but that's okay. Sometimes we need to just learn about writing, we're going to do that, and I'm going to be doing a class, I think, on the book proposal. <sighs> yes, don't you all love it? Well, I'm gonna, I didn't used to love it, but I don't mind them now. So if you think you hate them, and you don't know how to do them, I'm just the guy to talk to you about it, because I used to hate it too, but don't anymore. So that's all over at pnwa.org. Yes, it is. Uh, all right, everybody, listen, today, as you may have noticed, I'm coming to you, I'm not live, just finished my conversation uh, with Stuart Evers over in jolly old England, and uh, we had a great conversation. Stuart, this is his fourth book, he just came out with a book called The Blind Light, Woo, it's a good one, uh, well done, ambitious, interesting book, and we had a great conversation about his unusual journey, he started late for a writer, started a little late, but he's had great success, and... Um, and we had a great conversation about uh, how he came to this book and about the Cold War and what it was like to live. It was just good. So check it out. Here he is, me and Stuart Evers. All right. Well, Stuart, welcome to the show. Hi there. So, uh, so let's see. I'm talking to you. First of all, I'm talking to you in London. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I live in uh, at the uh, east end of London, a place called Walthamstow, um, which... Um, is a slightly different place than it was 10 years ago when I, oh. moved, when I moved here. It's uh, it's kind of like the Brooklyn of, e- of East London. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, well, if you were an American, you would live in Brooklyn. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> what I know, my, my brother lived in Brooklyn for a while and is probably going to live there again. So you would be there. Yeah. Well, so uh, how are things there? You know, writers, we're indoor creatures by and large anyway, but how is it for you there? Um, well, we're just into our second week of um, of, of our second lockdown, so um, we're not we're not supposed to go into work. Um, uh, all the bars and restaurants are closed. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of a miserable time. Um, uh, even more miserable this time because I decided at the start of it that I would do a sober lockdown, so I haven't had a drink for two weeks. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's an interesting decision, put it that way. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of drank all the drinks well the last time. So I kind of decided to do it the other way around this way. Um, it's a, it, it it's a funny time, you, you know, with people are thinking about Christmas. Um, the kids are back at school, which is good. The kids are still in school. So, so, yeah. so I've got two boys, five and seven. So that, so, so oh. they're back. So there's a, there's a sense semblance of normality to everything, but, um, yeah, we're just kind of we're we're on pause essentially, waiting for some good news at the end of the month, hopefully. And um, you know, we hear 
rumors of vaccines and, and yes, other such things to get our hopes up. And yes, we're getting the um, same rumors here. And, yeah. So you know, I, 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 it's a, uh, it's it's a, it's an unusual time for for everyone. Um, it is. And um, I, um, we're, yeah, we're just we're we we're, we're coping. You know, as, yeah. as as well as as everyone as everyone can really, I guess. So, um, all right. So the blind light is book number three. Did I do my remembering correctly? Four. Four. Excuse me. Yeah, it's okay. Four. Yeah. Two two collections of stories and a and a, and a previous novel. Okay. Uh, well, so Stuart, um, well, before we get to the book, which is a big, ambitious book and beautifully done, congratulations. I hope you're proud of it. You should be. Um, but before we get to that, let's go back. Um, you strike me, uh, this is not the case with everybody. So you strike me as someone who writing was really probably always the plan. Is that fair to say? Or was it something you stumbled into in college or something? No, I, I um, reading was always the thing, um, and I suppose as a consequence of of the reading and the wanting to do it myself came out of that. Um, I, I, I'm a tremendously lazy person in lots of ways, and um, and none more so than at college. I was, I was far more interested in the kind of social aspect than I was in anything else. But um, I had these pockets of of moments of discovery i guess where i found novelists and 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 writers and poets who really kind of spoke to me and that that was the moment i think and then i, I when i when i left college um i got a job in a bookstore completely by accident and uh, it just it changed everything because the i i just i didn't stop reading even before i actually started working at the bookshop i i I'd moved to a new city and I, I went to the library and I started at A and I'd got to C by the time I got to got to university picking out novels by people that I hadn't read before. Um, some of which were formative, others were formative in a kind of negative way. It was like, you know, I just didn't appreciate them. Um, but yeah, so the, I, I think that the, I, I think certainly until I was in my, I would say mid mid twenties. I I didn't feel like I had the per permission to write. I didn't feel like oh. I belonged in that kind of world. Um, in a in a sense that kind of a lot of the books that I was I, that I found myself in or, or, or was was kind of blown away by. Um, uh, they didn't necessarily you know, feature people like me or from, from my kind of background. And those that did would tended to be from the 1950s or the 1960s. So um, for me, um, it took a long time to feel like I could write. And I was always doing stuff in the background and, and it was never, it was never good enough and it wasn't concerned and the effort wasn't there. And I think I, I, I was busy trying to find a voice rather than, right. um, Rather than, it, rather than it happening. And then um, I, I started, started writing seriously um, probably when I was about 30, 31, probably. And really? um, wow. Yeah, before I, before I really started properly writing. And it was out of a kind of necessity because I was very, very fortunate. Um, after the bookshop, I worked in publishing for a while. And um, 
and I was very, very fortunate to, I worked mainly on nonfiction, which was kind of odd because my big passion was fiction. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, it was, it was great to, to be in the same room as those kind of guys, but I was more uh, dealing with. What did you do in publishing? <laughs> I was an editor. Um, oh, okay. I, I worked mainly, mainly on nonfiction, commercial nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was very jealous of all those people who were, you know, signing up, you know, hot new writers or, right. you know, being able, you know, and I was always the first in the room if there was a if there was a visiting writer to, that would that was going to come in, and I would, you know, fortunately get to go and chat to them, and right. often they'd be terrified because I'd know more about their books than they would, um, <laughs> in, in that in that kind of slightly slightly off putting kind of way, right. um, and then um, yeah, so I so um, uh, but I, I lost my job. There was a whole bunch of restructuring, and. Um, and I lost my job and I, I, I couldn't find anything in the same kind of area. And I ended up working for a mobile phone or cell phone company, uh, writing press releases and marketing copy. Oh boy. And it was a, it was a really kind of, it was a, it was, it was a real change of pace. It was different kinds of people that I was working with. It was, um, was a very frenetic sales driven pace. Right. Um, politics was very different um right. the um just the, you know the world was was very different and i realized at that moment that if i if i didn't actually do the kinds of things that i've been talking about doing you know the books that i were going to, was going to write and the stories i was going to write then i would um i had to do it now otherwise i would never do it so i literally started i wrote the first story that i wrote which was in my first collection i wrote in I think maybe two or three weeks with the lunch breaks at the wow. at the cell phone okay. company. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, it's just with 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 all authors, I think that you, there's a certain amount of happenstance, there's a certain amount of luck, there's a certain amount of just blind perseverance, and suddenly you might find that things open up for you. And in my case, almost by accident. Um, things were slightly changing in London in as much as that, that people were interested in going and hearing readers, sorry, writers read from their work in a way that, you know, the kind of poetry sums had always been there and you know, right. poetry cafe and, and all the rest of it. Um, but not really for, for short fiction. And, um, and I became very good friends with a whole bunch of people who have gone on to become very good and very well-respected writers in their own right, but who were just basically starting out or, you know, we're selling, you know, their short stories that they, you know, tape together and and and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So, right. it was um, uh, it, it was it, it was a bit of luck um, that we had this kind of support network and um, uh, and you know, my my first book was called Ten Stories About Smoking, which came about simply from a conversation with um, I, I I read this one story that I'd written and um, this. Um, my good, my now good friend Nikesh came over to me and said, "Oh, that's really great. Are you working on something bigger?" And I, I and I said, "Oh, well, I'm working on this collection of stories about smoking." And he said, "Oh, really? What's that called?" And I said, oh, "It's ten stories about smoking. It's like ten stories." In the... And uh, he said, "Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to read it." And I thought, "Well, I'll actually have to do this then." And that was, um, and it was something that I had been kicking around in my in my mind, but because I actually said it, I felt like I actually had to go through with it. So it was a. Uh, um, it was one of those moments where, you know, 
it, it, there is a, a certain amount of good fortune, but you know, you, you have to follow through on these things. You had to just keep going. And, um, and I was very, I was very fortunate in that respect that, um, that the time was right. And I also had the time and the kind of mental energy to do that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm always glad that, you know, I kind of put the energy into it after I'd lived a bit of a life right. rather than, you know, writing about, you know, what I, what I was always fearful of was writing kind of juvenilia and, right. and writing that kind of thing. I, I mean, looking back on it now, you know, the stories that I wrote back then, you know, we're talking like 12 years ago, you know, they are, they are about um, men and women in, of a certain age um, that I was around that then, you know, sort sure. of, you know, in their early, early to mid thirties and trying to make sense of what is going around them. But um, I, you know, my, I think, the the atmosphere that I tried to create was less they're, they're written in a realistic key but there's a kind of sense of strangeness in the background a kind of sense of the uncanny in the background of most of the stories where right. even though they feel that they exist in a, in the real world they are also anchored in a kind of strange kind of yeah. queasy light which shows which shows um, the world is perhaps not as concrete as, as people might think. Well, I love, I love stories like that. Um, that was always what I was drawn to earlier on um, when I first really discovered literary fiction. That was sort of my favorite aspect of it in films too, that were related to it. Um, when you, uh, you talked about when you were interested in it, you were interested in fiction and you thought you wanted to write, but it was hard for you to see yourself as a writer, which is a, a hurdle a lot of people have to get over because if you love to read, there is a tendency, I think maybe to deify writers a little bit because they can mean so much to you and it, um, and they can be so influential. Do you remember, maybe you're still dealing with it. Do you remember when you were able to sort of get past that and just see it as something you did rather than something you have to discover if you're worthy of? Um, I, I don't know. I got over it. I got over it pretty quickly because of the, because of the work, you know, uh -huh. the, it, it's it ultimately it's about the work. And that's the thing that I always come back to is it's about the work. And, you know, there's a certain amount of getting over yourself because ultimately, you know, if I, if I, if I ever do talks or, or talk to students, you know, one of the things that I, that I often say is that, writing a book will not change your life in the way that you think it will. Right. It will not plug the gaps. It will not make you less lonely. It will not make you uh, more attractive to the <laughs> kinds of people you're attracted to. It will, it will, it will not necessarily make you that much richer. Um, it will give you a whole set of new problems that you never realized you had. And you might be slightly, slightly worried about those problems. Like what? Like well, what? What are the new well, set of know, problems you get? Well, I mean, you had a jealousy of uh, of other writers in right. a way that you never had before because suddenly they're published on the same day as you and they get more attention even though they're, <laughs> they're, they're poorer writers than you. Um, the fact that you don't get any reviews, the fact that um, right. you, you're getting the wrong kinds of reviews. Right. You, you've, all you right. know, there, are whole, there are all there are all kinds of, of, of different and brand new awful experiences to to endure. Um, and 
you just move on. I think one of the things about being a writer is, is most people are writers because they are ultimately dissatisfied with the world and their own lives. And they would prefer to be able to manipulate and change the world in, in a way in which um, gives them a, an iota more control than perhaps they had before. And, um, and I think, I, I think that's a, a crucial thing, but ultimately it, it, it does, bec- it's about the work and, you have to concentrate solidly on that, almost a kind of, you uh, know, in, in a way to just to dispense with the self because you, yes. you, you, your key concern should be about getting the very best possible um, work on the page and into people's, hopefully into, into people's lives yeah. um, that you, that you can, that you can do. And, that makes it sound quite serious and and uh, and and vital, but 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 that it is. I mean that that's the thing. Ultimately, no matter what you're writing, what you need to be able to do is to say that was as good as it possibly could be. Right. That got to the essence and the the core of what I wanted to get across, what I wanted to expound upon, what I wanted people to take from reading that book. Um, and you know, as I say. You know, you might think that that's, you know, it's a very, very worthy and uh, and literary kind of aspiration. But I don't think there's any difference between, no. you know, trying to get that out as if you're, you know, if, if you're Samuel Beckett or um, whether you're, you know, um, a, a romance novelist or a, right. or a crime novelist. I think that ultimately it's about that, that quality of expression um, and getting to the core of what that is um that's that's the the important thing yeah i always tell my students it's like if you want to be a writer you have to enjoy i do think this is true which is that writing is the only art form i've done a bunch of different arts the theater and music and visual arts and writing is the only one that doesn't actually involve one of the five senses you're writing about the five senses but it's it's all thought based it's an it's a even though you're describing what physically happens it doesn't draw upon the five actual use of the five senses for the transmission of one to another and so as a writer you have to be interested just in thought in translating three-dimensional five sensory thing into just thought does that make sense and what that means does that does is that part of the appeal to you um, I, I've not really, not really considered it in those terms. I think right. for me, the closest I've got to a definition of literature, um, the closest I'll probably ever get to it is the idea that, that um, literature is a, a, a sandpit, uh, a sandbox, a, a, a children's play area for the, for the mind. Um, you pick up a book and um you can live a hundred different lives. You can experience a hundred different sensations um, from page to page, from sentence to sentence. You can swoon at beauty and you can uh, be put in tremendous peril. Um, and it's a safe space, um, a safe space to experience all of those things. And I think that, I think that um, the job of great literature is to throw broken glass and, uh, and shards and, and, and dirty needles into that, that safe space um, and show you behind that curtain of, of, of safety and, and show you something that's, that's slightly dangerous within your own self. That's not to say that everything has to be 
you know confront confrontation but i think what it should do is it should reveal something to you whether that's in the depths of a of a, of a dark laugh or whether that's in a, that's in something which is um exposing something in in the heart that you understand um when you see the person you love um or you know a spaceship that takes the breath away that's what i think that literature is is trying to create and you know the five senses come into that but i think ultimately it's about how you um how you arrange your play area how you how you set up your sandbox to um to allow people to to trip through the uh through the th through the through the play and imagination of the mind but also making sure that at the same time that um that they're never quite certain quite sure whether they'll survive or not <laughs> so all right so book number four is the blind light um I described it earlier at the beginning of the podcast as an ambitious book. Uh, it, I don't know if you intended it that way or if you were just, you said, I have an idea and you started writing it and you were like, oh my God, what have I got here? Uh, talk to me about how you came to the story and um, sort of how, how your understanding of it, understanding of what you were trying to create grew, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, so in, mm, it would have been early 2013 or late 2012, um, I went to visit a, um, a secret nuclear bunker or, or an ex secret nuclear, nuclear bunker, um, which is now a museum, not far from where my parents live. And, uh, when I was growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, um, we lived on the the flight path from Manchester airport. So we see airplanes going, going past every day, but obviously at that time it's the height, very heightened part of the, of the cold war. So they kind of like after the thawing of the seventies into the, into the, right. into the kind of white heat of the, the early eighties, particularly after the uh, Russian invasion of Afghanistan in, 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 in latter part of 1979 into 1980. And um, I was of nuclear war as a child i was i mean it was it was you mind i'm sorry to it interrupt. was constant how old are you i know this is a strange question but i'm curious about your age because nuclear war was very much on my mind as a young man also it just seemed to hover over everything yes yeah. quietly yeah so so i'm, I'm 44 um okay. so it was still you affecting know, you guys at that age yeah because because you know like like particularly in in England, well, I mean, it went in the States as well, but, you know, in, in, in England in, in the early 80s, you know, it was a pretty depressing place at the right. best of times. But, the, but, the, but, you know, the Thatcher-Reagan yeah, yeah, axis, yeah. you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a day that went past when something, you know, like there was the shooting down of, of um, KAL 007, which was, yeah. um, uh, which was you know, over, um, over Siberia, which was a huge deal. Um, there was Reagan caught on on uh, on um on a microphone saying the bombs are five minutes from russia as a joke you know it was all the all that kind of it was very much in yeah. the air at, at the time and then there was also um this television program called threads which was um uh which was a dramatization of what the what a nuclear bomb attack on sheffield which is a city not far away from where oh, i, they did, where they I want lived those two. Okay. um would yeah and it was you know it was terrifying and and yeah. 
but it was it was it was prevalent you know like you know there were protect and survive leaflets being distributed by the government you know like the, 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 it was it was a very real fear yeah. so we went down into the secret nuclear bunker and um and we walked around in silence my wife or heavily pregnant wife and 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 my my mum my mother and father and we walked around in this kind of reverentary silence um and just kind of communing with the bomb really i mean communing with with our past selves and the, just the sheer terror of it and the very the, the very the proximity of that fear um and it brought it all back and um and there weren't that many people there and and um and in front of us um as we we turned around a corner there was there was a younger couple probably in their i would say you know early 20s and they the, it was it wasn't anything that they particularly did it was the way that they looked at some of the exhibits um and they looked at it as if it was ancient history as if it was some kind of kitsch old-fashioned thing that you know just belonged to a bygone age it was like, like they were looking at i don't know something from from victorian times or something like you know, you know the same kind of way that they might look at roman ruins or something like that you know it's just this kind of this this kind of thing that we've woken long since woken up from and uh, and I was, I was livid. I was, I was so angry. I couldn't, I couldn't get over my anger. You know, went through this, you know, terrible kind of theme park of of, of, of dread from the from the past. Yeah. And so we walked back up the um, up the stairs, back up to kind of some semblance of real life. You know, with the cafe of, of the secret nuclear bunker where you can buy, you know, gas masks and yeah, and you know all this kind of stuff. Um, and and I came out, and it, it wouldn't let me go. It which would not leave leave me. This this right. image of this of this of this uh, of this bunker, and and these kids just looking at it, thinking, "Oh, you know, there's nothing nothing to see here," kind of thing. You know, this is all old fashioned, and and you know. And so I I decided that I was going to write something about the um, about the Cold War, about the effect of the Cold War on ordinary people you know i you know almost all of my stuff that i write is about are about very normal average people the kinds of people who i grew up with and around the kind of people who people don't write books about really um and i wanted to i wanted to write about the effect of a cold war on yeah. them and on, on on this one family you know and i start go ahead i'm sorry yeah and then i i um as i was doing some research on British preparedness in the case of a nuclear war, I came across a, a Pathé newsreel, newsreel from 1959 um, about um, a place called Doomtown, which simulated a British town in the well, aftermath of an atomic... Yeah. Was, oh. and, yeah. <laughs> um, I simulated, it, you know, and um, and in it, there was a, there's a, a shot of, of, a, of, a, of two servicemen, one dressed up as if they've just been been rescued and the other one feeding him a cup of tea um and i just i had that i just knew from there that was the start of the book and right. I, I knew it instantly that these these two wow. these two friends would be at least one pillar of the, of this book and so um what i wanted to explore was if you've seen the end of the world how does that affect you right and then how does it affect the people around you yeah. And how do we deal with controlling our fears? Yeah. Um, because control, I mean, it's interesting as, as this book was being written, the, the concept and the idea of control became very, 
big in British politics, taking oh. back control. Right. Um, you know, the, the Brexit, Brexit thing. And, and yeah. Yeah. And then and then also, you know, in American politics with, you know, yeah. with with Donald Trump's Make America Great Again, again, it was about control. It's about, you know, the the you know, build the wall is about control. It's about yeah. suddenly having control over things that we don't think that we have control over. So it appealed to a very particular demographic of pe- people who feel like they have, they had control and they've now lost it. Yeah. Um, and I thought that, you know, I, and, you know, I think, I think it's interesting to me that the longer I went on with the book, the more kind of prescient the book became to the, to, to, to the, to the thing. So my book came out in the UK at the very height of the pandemic Right. Um, with all the bookshops closed and, and all the rest of it. Um, and there was me writing a book about fear, control, about right. <laughs> uh, about what we would do to save our own family. Right. Um, what 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 is, you know, how do how do we protect and survive when we're just trying desperately to get through the day? And um, should we really be worrying about the bigger picture and the and the and something that we have no control over, i.e. A, 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 a pandemic or a, or a bomb um, when, you know, we might be worried about our wife leaving us or our father being a tyrannical, you know, mess, uh, you know, mental health problems, you know, anything like that. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, how do we, how do we lead a normal life in extraordinary times? Yeah. You know, um, I'm glad you wrote this book and I, in, in reading it, I thought about my own childhood and I know that just as you were saying, the themes of it, obviously control is gonna be forever an issue in human life, I think. But it's a funny thing about that time of the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war, because I grew up through it. And, it and, the, and it's not been written about actually, I don't think that much of just what that was psychically. And I, it's only in talking to my kids about it that I reflect on how I absolutely grew up thinking it's a distinct possibility this will all get wiped out. That for some yeah. reason, without any, without any warning and without any real provoc, it just, boom, it'll be gone. Not some big, slow takeover of the world. And it was a weird existential nihilistic way to live that you just sort of existed with, I did at least throughout all my uh, teen years. And it's not something that I think, I mean, I guess Gravity's Rainbow did it in a way, but it's not something that's been done a lot in fiction that I've, that at least I'm aware of. Like just what that was to permeate through to live with that thing. And this is why I was interested. This book seemed to actually address that in a more direct way. And I think it was a huge psychic thing to, a, to, a, to at least two generations of people that goes largely unaddressed because we think that thing is over. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that um, for me, at least when I, when I was looking at it, um, what I, what I, what I was thinking was, was the, the sense that that just it just finished and was over right um uh, was one thing but what i thought was interesting was the way that it permeated um culture in a way that we didn't even really think about it yeah, yeah. um you know that it was just there one of the things you, you, you know how you know certain strange things that stick in your brain there was one from a line of a terrible british sitcom called the two of us mm-hmm. um and the central premise of it is that um uh there's a, a a couple and they live together but they're not married and the 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 man's mother doesn't like it that's basically the, the premise of the sitcom right. but in it the, there's 
they're, they're caught in bed together or something. And, and, and the, 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 and the, the son says to the mother, but you know, you did that during the war. And she says, well, yes, but we were living under the shadow of the war. And he said, well, we're living under the shadow of the bomb. And there was like, you know, this canned laughter of the, the audience. Right. And it was really chilling. Just like, I don't know why that stuck with me so much, but it's really chilling just to have this kind of, oh yeah, we're, ha- right. we're having, you know, this is Friday night, 7.30. We're watching this, we're watching this, this sitcom. It's all light. And it's like, and we're just dropping a joke like that, that people are laughing at. And it's like, ha ha ha, we're all, we, we could all die at any minute. And, right. you know, we're talking about, you know, Brezhnev and, and Reagan, you know, we're talking, um, you know, I don't know what the, the music was quite like in, in the US at the time, like pop music, but pop music was really apocalyptic. We had songs yes. like Anola Gay, which is, you know, about yep. the, um, uh, about the bomb that was dropped on, on Hiroshima. We had um, Two Tribes by Frankie, which is just like where the video was initially banned because it had um, uh, people dressed up in mass. One of whom was Brezhnev. The other one was, um, was Reagan mud wrestling, you know? And it's like they, they started off with, you know, the, 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 the song opens with the, with a, with a, the nuclear howl of, a, of, a, of an air raid siren. In the background, there's all these kind of like public information films. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because as I, you know, as I was writing the book, slowly and surely other people were, were sort of talking about the Cold War again. So yeah. I think it was like, you know, that music suddenly becomes popular again and people start talking about it. And then, you know, oh, you know, they 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 reshow threads on the on the television in the UK for the first time since it had been um uh since it had been broadcast back in, in nineteen eighty three. So um it felt like this was the kind of the right time. And then, you know, obviously as I was doing the edits, you know, there was there was the tensions between Korea and and the and um and, and the US, you know, like possible nuclear stuff going on there. So um sometimes I think you get this kind of psychic understanding as a novelist and as a writer that, that something's in the air and 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 it's kind of the, the the further on you get with it, then someone will eventually catch up and it will it will find that moment. And sometimes it's not that the books books aren't great that they don't do well. It's just that they're just the wrong time. And yeah. you just kind of think, oh, if that book had come out two years earlier, it would have done really well. Or if it, if it could just hold on for five years, then, you know, that would have just been perfect for this moment. And um, yeah, so I think well, so I'm quite fortunate in that respect. I hope, I hope it takes off. It's a good book. Uh, it shows a lot of care and uh, love for lack of a better word. So well done. Uh, I, I hope it does as much as it, hope it gets this kind of attention if it hasn't already, at least here in the U.S. Uh, again, the book is called uh, the, uh, the, Bl- the, the Blind Light. The Blind Light, everybody. So check it out. Now, I'm not quite ready to let you go yet, Stuart. Um, first of all, if people want to find out all about you, where can they do that? Um, Twitter's probably the easiest place. I'm okay. always sort of lurking around, normally recommending other people's books. But um, right. uh, my, um, uh, yeah, my, my Twitter handle is my name. So it's at Stuart Evers, S-T-U-A-R-T-E-V-E-R-S. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, the problem, the, 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 the problem with following me is that you will get a lot of recommendations for lots uh, and lots of books and it, it can, be, can be quite costly. Well, you know what? People got nothing else to do right now. They're going to get quarantined again. So it seems like a good thing as any. All right. So at Stuart Evers, got it. So yeah. my last question is this. I want you to finish this sentence. 
If yeah. writing, all the writing you've ever done has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Um, nothing's ever good enough. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Um, uh, the, yeah, there's no, yeah, nothing's ever good enough. It's never going to be good enough. Never going to be good enough. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I remember my, my, my very good friend, um, William Atkins, he's a, a, a nonfiction writer. And uh, everyone at the time was talking about um, uh, 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. And, uh, and he was the first person I knew to have finished it. And I said, so what do you think? And he went, it's good. And I said, well, how good? He said, well, how good can it be? And it was, and I thought that was a real, <laughs> it's always a very good way of, of, of like cutting through the hype because, you know, th there, there are great books. There are wonderful, amazing writers out there. Um, and, you know, it's just a question of finding them and, um, and, you know, what you think is the best that this one day will be not quite as good as something else the next day. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's what I, that's what I've learned. I'm, I'm sorry that it's not a more positive message. That is all right. Thank you so much, Stuart. That's excellent. No problem at all. Thanks, Bill. All right. Well, there you go. There's Stuart Evers, my conversation. It's true. You know, nothing's ever going to be perfect. You're never going to be 100. You're just not. He's right. You're never going to think, that's it. I've done it. Not in the way maybe you imagine, but that's okay because there's always the next story. There's always the next story. That's the thing bubbling in you. Yes, it is. Okay. I will be back again next week. I will be live, and I'll be with you. And I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. You're awesome as always. And to all of you out there, go find something you love to do and do it. <laughs> <laughs>